following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Officially, my job this morning is to speak on Hebrews chapter 11, um, which I will do eventually. Um, But this is a big topic for just one message. So this will just scratch the surface, even though it will be long. I mean... Hopefully not past 12.30, but still, it's it's not going to be everything that could be said. It's a complicated topic. There's just a lot to be said. You probably want to just plan on joining me and everybody else in room six afterwards because there's just not going to be enough. We can continue talking there. So I'm going to try and explain one of the most misunderstood and most abused topics in Christianity, and 30 minutes should be plenty. So we'll see what we can do. Um, faith is one of those topics that I think we all know about, but also don't. I think we just have a lot of questions. We, th- we think, well, of course I know what faith is. And then when someone asks you to define it or describe it or you try and think of it for yourself, it's elusive. Um, so part of the reason for this is because there's just some strange language sometimes in Scripture. There's things that are hard to understand. Uh, but a bigger part of the problem is that a lot of wrong things have been said about the topic. And even if you don't believe them, it's just so prevalent that it's just hard not to pick it up and and have to weed through that. Um, Some whole systems and ministries have been set up around these false ideas of faith. So hopefully this morning we can cut through some of that noise. Uh, A guy named D.A. Carson, a a pastor and theologian, famously said, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. It just sounds cool, so that's why I say it mostly. Um, If you haven't heard it, you know what it means. You've experienced it, you've seen it, you've heard it. I'll give you an example. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. It means if you strip a text from its surrounding context, you're mis treating it, right? You're not using it properly. You're taking it out of context. And that becomes a pretext or a basis for a wrong teaching, which is a proof text. Um, Like I said, even if you haven't heard the phrase, you're familiar with the principle. You've probably heard one politician or another drum up support for some policy that they're trying to push through. They say, look at this guy and what he said. He supports it. And that guy will come back and say, no, I don't. He just said something I didn't say. I mean, I said those words, but they're stripped completely out of context. You've heard this, right? This is not that unusual. It's way too common. Um, you hear pe- talking heads on TV do this all the time, too. They're, they're trying to advance their agenda, and they say things that aren't accurate. Um, they aren't alone. When the 1995 movie Seven, which I'm not recommending, but when it was pr- released, it was promoted as a small masterpiece. You know, you see these things come out in the trailer or on the movie poster. It said Seven, a small masterpiece. Well, a critic did say that, but let me read the quote that the critic actually published in his review. The credit sequence, with its jumpy frames and near subliminal flashes of psycho paraphernalia, is a small masterpiece of dementia. <laughs> so yes, he said it's a small masterpiece, but they didn't use it the way he intended it. A text without a context is a pretext or a proof text. That's what it means. If you memorize that, you sound fancy. Um, I could give lots and lots of examples of these, but I think you get the idea. In each idea, in each instance, we end up believing something that is untrue because we didn't do our homework. We are trusting what someone else has said and trusting that it's true without looking to see when they're citing an authority, are they accurately citing that authority? And when I was looking into this, I found medical studies, um, 
pseudo-medical studies, things that people said, this is, this is fantastic. Even look what these people have said about it. Most people didn't say that at all. So be careful. Uh, this is everywhere. My point is we do this all the time with Scripture um, because whole sections of doctrine don't fit on T-shirts, bumper stickers, and coffee mugs. We distill it to something that may or may not be true, um, sometimes with good intentions. Often I would doubt that. But we end up using texts that don't communicate what the sweep of Scripture is intending to say. The only way we can be sure that we are not doing this is if we actually look at Scripture and keep the text in its context. Uh, and uh, like I said, I see multiple examples daily of this. I almost don't notice it anymore because it's just depressing how often it happens. I'll just mention two biblical examples that I won't get into, but we can talk about later if you want to. Um, topic of judging. Often when uh, someone points out sin or other error that's happening, someone will be quick to say, the Bible says judge not. You're not supposed to judge. The Bible says it. Well, there is a verse that starts with judge not, but you've got to read the rest of the verse or the rest of the Bible because the Bible has all kinds of instructions on how we deal with sin, how we deal with error, false teachings, all kinds of things. And to do this, judgment is required. We have to use our, our, our judgment. So to denounce judgment across the board is to misunderstand Scripture. Okay? Uh, another one, prospering. Um, the, a, a, a popular idea that started from proof texting is when people look at Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. God knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper. We'll have hope. We'll have a future. Okay, that's a true thing. If you look at the context and see what he's talking about, are there people in the Bible who did not prosper? Are there people in the Bible who did not have hope? Or who denied their hope because of the, the choices they made. They denied God. Did they have hope? No, they did not. They went to hell. So, yes, the Bible says, I mean, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is true. But you can't just tear it out and then stick it to whatever you want to. Um, as I said earlier, I think today's topic is also one of the most misrepresented and misunderstood out there. Many see faith as something like wishing with certainty. Um, they, and they end up treating God almost like a genie. They'll cite verses or things that sound like verses, but that don't end up turning up to actually be in the Bible to support their position. Um, they will say things like, faith means being sure we will get whatever unseen things we hope for. Because we will, because we will, as long as our faith is strong. As long as we ask in faith, God will do what we ask. Pretty much nothing is out of reach. We can even command trees and mountains to move, and whatever we want to do will happen as long as our faith is strong. And faith's not limited to mountains and trees and things like that. We can even change the nature of reality by calling things that are not as though they were. In all of these, confidence is key. You just have to really strongly believe. But the problem is, in each of these cases, the confidence is misplaced. Because even though these sound like scriptures, and some of them actually are fragments of scripture, the Bible does not anywhere give the idea of anything that I just said. That's a misunderstanding of it. And sadly, since these promises are not made in scripture, people who believe that they are ultimately end up disappointed, to say the least, because they think that God let them down. They think that... They did everything they're supposed to do. So what went wrong? I know many people who have left church over this. Um, the way they see it, they had faith and God didn't come through. Many of these people are even unbelievers today. 
because they see this failure as evidence that there is no God. I thought there was. I heard these promises. But then when I did what they say, it didn't work. So the Bible isn't true. Others just become super frustrated Christians because they think there must be something wrong with them. Because I followed the instructions in the Bible and God didn't come through. He ignored what I asked him. So it must be me. I must be doing something wrong. But the truth is, in most of these cases, well, I'll say in, in all of these cases, God did not let people down. The problem is, the, it's not that the strength of their faith was a problem or that God was a problem. Shouldn't even say that. The sad reality is their faith was misplaced. They're placing faith in faith or faith in something that they misunderstood. They weren't, they weren't placing faith in what the scripture says. So, if we get there by proof texting, let's look at how to avoid proof texting. The way we want to avoid it is by make sure, making sure we read scripture in context. That way a text will not be without its context. Not just the immediate context, although that often clears things up, but in the context of the full sweep of Scripture. So to that end, I want to look at what the Bible says throughout about faith. Um, and I'm, I'm not claiming to have all the answers. I'm going to read what's in Scripture. So when Scripture speaks, we can be confident. And this is why I have lots of footnotes. You can see if what I'm saying is true, and you should. On my search, there are almost 500 occurrences of faith, um, and it was a lot to read. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I'm looking at all of this together. Some of these definitely are more difficult to understand than others, but that's okay. The vast majority of the Bible is very easy to understand. There are definitely difficult things in there, but not most of it. But too often, we ignore the plain and easy teachings of Scripture... I don't say easy, meaning easy to apply necessarily, but easy to understand. But we ignore that, and instead we amplify things that we're speculating about or that we're misunderstanding. We just have it totally upside down. The proper approach is to let the clear teachings of Scripture illuminate the unclear. So if there's something you don't understand, there's a great chance that something else in the Bible will tell you more about the topic, and you go, I get it now. This makes sense. In all of the uses of faith, there are themes that jump out. The ones in the Bible who are called faithful are those who believe in God, who obey him, and who persevere. I mean, that's the description of what faith is, or faithfulness at least. Belief in God, obedience, and perseverance. This isn't to say that we obey God in order to be, to be rewarded. There is a reward, but that's not the reason. But rather, the one who believes will have different desires. He will choose to obey. And when he fails, which he will, we're all going to fail. But rather than feeling condemnation, we'll feel guilt. I'm sorry. Rather than feeling condemnation or guilt, we'll feel grief for disappointing God. Because we know we love him and we, our desires are turned to him. So it's not about perfection in the law as much as it is loving God. Um, the faithful believe, obey, and persevere, but they don't find those abilities totally within them. The Bible says things like, belief comes by hearing the word of God. That's where we get it from initially. Believers are given a new heart with new desires to obey. Plus, we're given the Holy Spirit within us who helps us to obey. Uh, it also says God preserves the faithful. Endurance isn't just on us, it's on him as well. He enables us to do these things. So there are things we do, and we're actually commanded to do, but the ability comes from God. It's up to us to practice our belief in obedience so that we persevere.
So what is this belief that faith requires? Most often, faith is not referring to belief that something will happen. It's a belief in something, specifically God. Another way of saying this is to say that faith has an object. Faith is not placed in something. It looks toward an object. The object of our faith is Christ. Biblical believing faith is not a wish or a desire. It's confidence placed in a person. Paul talks about this a lot. He says he's not ashamed for he knows who he believed, faith. He knows that Jesus lived, facts they have faith in. He knows that Jesus lived, died for our sins, and was raised again. He said that if Jesus was not raised, we have no hope. Our faith is in vain. He places all the weight of his faith in Christ, not in his confidence, his, his strong will. The only thing upholding his faith is the historical fact of what Jesus said and did because he was God. That's the basis of his faith. That's what his faith is in. Faith is not wishful thinking or expectant hoping. Faith is placing your confidence in the person who is truly God and truly man. And this faith isn't something we just muster up from within us. It's not white-knuckled endurance. I can do this. It's not a blind leap, for crying out loud. People say this all the time. That's the opposite of what the Bible describes. There's no blindness. It explains. Here's what your faith is in. Open your eyes. Either accept it or don't. But here's what you're putting your faith in. Faith is certainty and assurance in Christ, granted by God, that comes from hearing the Bible preached. So, to avoid taking text out of context, let's read the context of Scripture. I'll look at some examples. There's a story about a paralytic who was brought to Jesus. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Does that sound weird to anyone else? Surely these people didn't all carry this guy who's been essentially crippled for life. They didn't carry him there hoping he would be forgiven of his sins. They wanted him healed. But the point in this story, the reason that this account was given, is that Jesus recognized their faith because it was placed in him, not in healing. It wasn't placed in make him better so that he dies with the use of all his limbs. Their faith was in Christ, that he could save them. Um, that was the point Jesus was making with them. He is the object of our faith. He is the result, or the result of placing our faith in him is forgiveness of sins. Now, he did get healed. It says at the end, but that's kind of a footnote to the story. There's another story where a father um, whose son has been possessed by demons, and he, he makes this statement, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think we get this story wrong a lot of the time. And I, I always had. I always heard this as saying, man, I believe as hard as I can, but I can't believe that hard, so God, help me make up the difference. I don't think that's what it's saying. Let's look at what he's, the, walk through the story. The man says to Jesus, if you can do it, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is based on what he actually said. If you can do it, please heal my son. Okay? Jesus' response is essentially this. If I can? Are you serious? Do you know who I am? I can do anything. The point isn't whether I'm able. The point is whether you understand who I am. Do you get it? And that's basically what he replies to the guy. And you can see this is the case because at the beginning of the story, it says no one else had been able to heal the boy, and Jesus rebuked them, not for lack of, you know, really strong effort in, in, in their faithfulness or whatever. He rebukes them for unbelief. 
He rebukes them for not believing in him. Not belief in the power of faith, but unbelief in Jesus. So back in the story, Jesus challenged the man's belief. He responds, the man does, responds by saying, yeah, I believe. But he follows up and says, help my unbelief. Essentially saying, I've got faith in who you are. Don't get me wrong, I do, I do believe who you are, but I don't think I've got enough faith to, heal, to have my son healed. And Jesus says, all that's needed is faith the size of a mustard seed. So the reason he says this is because he's saying, the issue isn't having bucket loads of faith. The issue is having the right faith. As long as you have a little bit of faith in him, you're good. Weak faith is still faith if it's placed in the right person. So are we putting our confidence in our own faith or are we putting it in Jesus? Um, There's another reference to having faith the size of a mustard seed. In the context, it's telling the same story. Jesus told his disciples, this is where he says, people say, well, what if somebody wrongs me? And he says, you've got to forgive them. How, how much? Like 70 times 7. What? 490 times? No, you're missing the point. He wasn't giving a math problem. He was saying, you're going to have to forgive people a lot if you want to be called one of mine. So the response is, uh, sorry, I skipped. So the response is, yikes, we're going to need a whole lot more faith. If we're going to have to obey this, or I'm sorry, if we're going to have to forgive this much, we're going to need loads of faith. And, but when Jesus brought up the mustard seed, his point was, guys, you're misunderstanding again. As long as your faith is in me, you're good. If your faith is in Christ, you're good. You can forgive. It's not about having more. You don't need to measure your faith. There's a centurion who was sent, who sent for Jesus because he had a sick servant. In the retelling of the story, though, again, that's not the main theme. That's not the point that's given. The focus is the centurion's belief in Jesus, in who he was. The centurion says, listen, I've heard about you. You don't even need to come here. Don't bother because I know you can do anything. This is the thing that Jesus wanted that other guy to believe. He already believed it. I know, you, I know who you are. I know you can do anything. You don't even have to come here. Just say it, and I know we'll be healed. This staggered Jesus. He was put back when the guy said this. He says, and he doesn't say it's because of the amount of faith he had. It, was that the man, it wasn't that the man had faith for miraculous things. It was that he had the kind of faith Jesus had been talking about. And in fact, the kind he had been looking for in all of Israel and hadn't seen anywhere. He says, I haven't seen this in all of Israel, but now you, a Roman centurion, actually has faith in me. Yeah, go home with your servant's healed. Um, yeah, that's, that healing, well, that's easy. That's not a big deal. You believed I'm who I said I am. That's the point. That's why I came. There are several times when Jesus uses this expression, O ye of little faith, at least in King James, and I think ESV, but we update it, but you still got to say ye, or it doesn't sound right. And I picture this goes with, oh boy, maybe a head shake, but it's, he's not really terribly impressed with uh, their behavior. But each time he says this, once it's in a storm, uh, I can't remember, there's there's, there's three or four times when he says, O ye of little faith. Oh, once it's when people are saying that, you know, are are we going to have enough where are we going to get clothes and food and all this? And Jesus goes, you guys, you, you have no faith. He's not saying you need to have lots more you know, uh, conviction that I can do miracles. What he's saying is, don't be anxious about your life. Your faith is in the creator of the universe. You're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. The lesson isn't about having a bold faith for big miracles. It's simply trusting Jesus. One more note about the audaciousness of our faith. 
Faith does bring us confidence, but that doesn't mean that our sincerity or our salvation can be measured by our boldness. Matthew says that Jesus was the one prophesied by Isaiah. Specifically, Matthew cites a passage that says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What Isaiah was saying, and he's speaking of the poor and the oppressed who are hanging on by a thread in life. They are just doing what they can to get by. So to come to them and say, you just need this massive faith. Now, they're not there. That's not what they're talking about. The Pharisees overlooked the broken and the destitute among them. But Jesus didn't. He went to the lowly. He was kind and gentle. He wasn't going to break these bruised reeds, these wicks that were barely smoldering and almost ready to go out. He wasn't going to harm them. He just said to them, you just need the smallest shred of faith in who I am. That's what I'm looking for. After that brief intro, we'll get to today's text. Hebrews follows a pattern that's familiar to much of the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the New Testament. The first part begins with doctrine. In this case, it's nine, or I'm sorry, ten chapters that we've covered to this point. Ten chapters of essentially intro, doctrine. Then this chapter 11, which is kind of a crossover, and then two more chapters, um, that kind of get to the point of Hebrews. So this beginning is an intro where it's saying, here are things you need to believe. These are facts you should know. This is Christian doctrine. The second part is application. This is how you ought to live in light of what you now know. This is in in just about all of Paul's letters. I believe he always follows this pattern, and Hebrews does as well. And over these recent months, we've covered these first ten chapters to lay the foundation for the point that want, that they want to make at the end. And the author is reviewing kind of the glory days of the Hebrews. All these things that they look back to and and kind of just reminisce. He shows the things that are central to their religion. But he says, look, each of these was just a shadow of Jesus. These are all nothing compared to Jesus. The point was always him. They just didn't know it. They say Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's the great high priest, greater than Melchizedek even. He brings a new covenant, and it's a much better covenant. He's greater than the, temp- uh, the tabernacle. He is a better sacrifice. So with these opening chapters, they're laying out this doctrine, things you need to know. Everything you believed, yes, these, these things were things worth knowing, but you didn't understand the point because Jesus hadn't come yet. That was the whole point. Because Hebrews is speaking to Hebrews. That's the name. So... Throughout these, these ten chapters are just, uh, are, are doctrine, but there are some warnings sprinkled in. It says these things, uh, just every once in a while, it'll say, remember what you have heard, don't drift away. Obedience, belief, believe in Christ so that you won't lose your eternal rest. Belief, perseverance, don't lose your passion for Christ, keep learning so you'll persevere. Draw near to God with the assurance your faith brings. Hold fast to your confession of hope and stir one another up to faith and love and good works. This should sound familiar. What Hebrews is saying in these first ten chapters is this whole message is believe, obey, and endure. It's the same message throughout Scripture. There's another pattern here, and it's elsewhere in Scripture. Um, And it's in the last passage, but I'll I'll point it out. Confidence in Christ's sacrifice gives us assurance of our salvation. We call this faith. And we know that God has promised an eternal rest. Not the temporary and incomplete rest that the Israelites had in Canaan, but a current rest in Christ's promises, and even more, a future rest in heaven after this life. That is our hope as Christians. So with these things in mind, 
Let faith and hope drive you to action. When we recognize the faith and hope we have, we are driven to a response. We obey God and we honor others. This is called love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul contrasts two sets of gifts against one another. One set of gifts, he says, these will pass away, but the other set will remain. The ones that remain, faith, hope, love. Same thing we're talking about here. They're gifts from God. They're things that believers do, but they don't come from within us. They come from God. He provides the faith necessary to believe in him. He gives us hope in the future. He enables us to love. And this loving of God and of others is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment of God and that summed up the entirety of the Old Testament. So now we can look at a quick survey of Hebrews chapter 11. This has been called the Hall of Faith. This chapter has been. Like the preceding ten chapters, it's kind of a greatest hits mix for the Jews. The author says, here's a list of our heroes, but with a twist that wouldn't have occurred to Jews any time before that. There's a pattern to these examples. Here's the pattern. Faith in God and what he has said will lead you to, led these people to obey, and God saw that as righteous. Okay, so let's look at some examples. It's just a few of the things it says there. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, Noah saved his family. Abraham left his home. Moses left a place of power. Rahab betrayed her country. Gideon conquered nations. There's other people that they don't look so successful. It appears that they failed in life. But he's saying this was not the point. The point was obedience to God. Obedience is always preferable to success or acclaim in the world. That's the point. But each of these people that are given as an example, each one was a hero in Jewish folklore. These are all the, if you just know a little bit about the Old Testament, you know these guys. But like the preceding chapters, the author wants to make a different point than they were used to. The reason these guys are heroes was not because of their great accomplishments. After all, you see at the end a list of a bunch of people who seem to have failed. So success wasn't the point. The reason they were mentioned was because they were certain that God would follow through on what he had promised they would receive after they died. And this certainty is what sustained them till the end. There's a strange phrase that keeps repeating in the chapter. The author said that God saw this faith and obedience, and he reckoned it to them as righteousness. He's talking about a concept called imputation here. Um, I've spoken on this in the past, so I won't I won't belabor it. You can look it up online on the website, or you can you can uh, um, you can join us after the service if you want to talk about it more. But imputation is an important part of the gospel, and uh, I will I will give you a brief summary of the gospel and what imputation is. The gospel says, we are not righteous. We are sinful wretches who betray God daily. And because of that, because he has told us what we're supposed to do and we don't do it, he would be perfectly just to kill us all and send us to hell today. From the beginning of the Bible, didn't he say, I'm warning you, don't do this thing or you'll die. He says this over and over. But what do we always do? We always do that thing. So we deserve the consequences. He said it would happen, so we deserve it. This doesn't sound like good news yet, but just hold on. Jesus stood in our place. That's the big but, the big however here. Jesus stood in our place. He lived perfectly like we should. He died like we should. So his life and death get credited to our account. That's what imputation is, is that last part. That's the good news. That he died for the things that we did, and we get seen as if we were righteous. 
That's what this, and God reckoned it to them as righteousness. That's what it is. Even in the Old Testament, before there was a Jesus as a, as a human, before he had come to earth, before they had any clue. Now, they had vague ideas of a Messiah. They didn't know who it would be or what he would do specifically. But they, still, they had faith. And, and they obeyed God. And because they had faith and obeyed, it was reckoned to them as righteousness, just like it is to us. When the, when the author says it was reckoned to them as righteousness, he's taking these heroes of their faith that they knew all about and ex- is explaining, using that as a jumping point to explain the gospel to them. He says these great heroes of the Jews were saved by their faith in Christ. That's what saved them. It's not what they did because these sacrifices they had to keep doing every year. These things didn't save them. Those people looked forward to Christ because he hadn't lived yet. They died, it even says this in Hebrews 11, they died without seeing how God would save them, but they still believed that he would. On the other hand, we look back to Christ. We have the benefit of not only knowing the promises they knew, but we know how they were fulfilled in the life and death of Christ. They, we have the same hope that they had. We have the same Savior that they had. If we have the same faith and hope in the same object that they did, we will be saved. And if we have the faith that we did, we will obey and we will endure till the end, just like they did. Gaining this understanding was a life changer for Martin Luther. Um, While studying, he saw the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a few times in scripture, including just before Hebrews 11. But he knew the Bible said that no one's righteous. So he thought this was kind of cruel of God to have these impossible expectations. No one is righteous, so who cares how they live? Then one day he made the connection. By studying other passages, he saw that Jesus paid it all. He saw that Jesus' righteousness would be imputed to us. Then he understood what this troubling phrase actually meant. By rewording it, the meaning became more evident. Putting this all together, what he came up with is actually the same theme of Hebrews 11. The one who by faith is seen as righteous, shall live. That's how they're righteous, because they're seen as righteous. As a side note, what Luther did here is a great example of how we can avoid the error I mentioned at the beginning. He came up against something that seemed complicated and read about what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. Then the complicated thing became clear. So we skipped over the opening of the chapter where the author defines faith. And I did that intentionally because that verse or two uh, is loaded with a lot of baggage. So I wanted us to first see what the whole sweep of scripture says about faith. And in fact, the examples given in the body of chapter 11 have that same idea in mind. So now let's look at the opening where the author defines what faith is and see if it fits the same thing. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So looking at this with everything we've talked about in mind, we know that biblical faith has to do with belief in God. And in fact, that's exactly what's in mind here. Biblically speaking, what are things hoped for? This isn't talking about our desires. It's not that kind of hope in this section. And you can see it by what's before it and what's after it and what's in the rest of the Bible. He's talking about where believers put their eternal hope. We can see this throughout scripture, but just in today's text, we can see in the middle of chapter 11, he says these heroes obeyed because their eyes were not set on this life. 
Even Abraham, who had been promised this, this uh, great land of rest that he could come to, it says in Hebrews 11, he wasn't even looking at that. He was looking past that. He was looking to the eternal home, a better country, it says, a better rest. That's what he was looking to. That was his hope, and that is our hope. And faith gives us the assurance that that hope will be ours. What about the second part, the the things not seen thing? Is this the part that means the stuff that we wish for? Uh, If we don't see what we want, then then those are things not seen. So we just need to claim it, and then then it'll be ours because of faith. No, that's not what it says. This one is even easier than the first one. Things not seen refers to things you can't see. It's talking about your eyes. Your actual physical eyeballs. So how do we, how do we uh, um, have assurance, if you want to use that language, of things that are visible? By looking at them with your eyes. And that's how it works. We, can have convi- we don't need conviction, internal conviction of things that are visible. But there's an invisible world we can't see. God is not visible. There are spirits, there, heaven, all of, the Bible talks about all kinds of things that we cannot see. This is the unseen. So what is it that gives you a conviction of things that are not seen? Faith. So again, faith is the assurance of things we hope for and the conviction of the things we can't see. It's all he's saying, the same thing the rest of the Bible says. And it's most basic, faith is merely belief. But as we mature, this faith becomes action. We practice what we preach, or more accurately, practice what Jesus preached. Uh, our, our walk begins to resemble Jesus' walk, um, and so does our talk, and it, it resembles what he said and did. We put our money where our mouth is, or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. Faith starts as a belief. It builds into a confidence, then trust, and then a firm assurance that what we believe actually is true. Christ remains the object of it all. A hope in heaven remains our future hope. So putting this all together, we get a definition, definition something like this. Faith is confidence and assurance that Christ's actions and God's promises give us hope in the future. This sort of faith results in personal conviction and surrender and a life of obedience. This is the sort of faith that God sees and reckons as righteousness. I'll tell you one thing that's going to sound harsh, but it's true and it's necessary. I started by saying most of Scripture is plain, but there are some things that are difficult to understand. But even the, the writers of the Bible thought the same thing. Listen to something Peter said. This is kind of funny. It's one of the authors speaking about another author. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. I just don't get what he's saying sometimes. Ignorant and unstable men have twisted what Paul said, and it will bring their ultimate destruction. Take care that you are not carried away by these same errors. So he's saying, you better be careful. If there is something that is not clear, that's okay. Don't twist it to mean what you want it to mean. That's why we need to be careful with scripture. Uh, And by the way, I don't want you to take my word for this. Check out what I've said to see if I'm telling the truth. Does scripture seem to line up with what I've described or what you've seen or read elsewhere? I'll be held to account for what I teach, but you'll be held to account for what you believe. God's word is the authority, not me. I'm just saying things. Um, So please do your homework. And this is not the popular teaching. If you search faith online, it's probably not a good idea. Uh, If you look in a Christian bookstore, Christian movie, magazine, broadcast, you will see a very different message. 
see which one aligns with what the Bible has to say. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, our only confidence is in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. So let us run the race, casting aside everything that would stand in our way. If we really believe that this is our faith and our hope, then we will avoid the warnings of apostasy that were sprinkled throughout the first ten chapters. If you don't have this kind of faith, the author of Hebrews says in the middle of chapter 11, if you don't have this kind of faith, you will not see God. He's that blunt. This is the kind of faith that is required. The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Coming chapters will talk about what that looks like in practice. So this first 10 chapters is, is, uh, is doctrine and truth. 11 talks about boots on the ground, how the Jewish heroes figure, uh, lived it out. And the rest is talking about how we can apply it. Um, so what does it look like when we really believe that Jesus actually is better? So keep coming back as Anthony finishes off the rest of this book. Um, I thank you for coming. It's only one minute over. So that is impressive, really. I mean, <clears throat> thanks for coming. Uh, have a wonderful week. As I said, please join me. Uh, if you have questions, want to discuss this, I love talking. You might have picked that up. Uh, I like to listen, too. So uh, please come back and join us if you would like. Um, and that is it. Thank you for coming. Uh, Lord, thank you very much for your word. I thank you that that your word is what we can have confidence in. And it doesn't matter what I say or what Anthony says or what anyone else says, honestly. The point is, does it line up with scripture? So I pray that you keep that in the front of our mind, that we continue to press into scripture, continue to learn, not apostatize, not not lean on our own understanding, but read what you have actually said about something. I pray that you will strengthen our faith, our love, our obedience, and help us to persevere this week and through the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.